Notes and references of more Celtic fairy tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Noel O'Kelly in Dublin. More Celtic fairy tales by Joseph Jacobs. Notes and references. I have scarcely anything to add to the general account of the collection of Celtic fairy tales which I gave in the predecessor to this volume, pages 237 to 242. Since the appearance of that volume in 1891, the publication of such tales has gone on apace. Mr. Curtin has published in the New York Sun no less than 50 more Irish fairy tales, one of which he has been good enough to place at my disposal for the present volume. Mr. Larmony has published, with Mr. E. Stock, a volume of West Irish fairy tales, of which I have also the privilege of presenting a specimen. A slight volume of Welsh fairy tales, published by Mr. Nutt, and a few fairy anecdotes contained in the prize essay on Welsh folklore by the Reverend Mr. Evans sum up Cambria's contribution to our subject during the past three years. The fifth volume of The Waifs and Strays of Celtic Tradition, just about to appear at the moment of writing, is the sole addition to Celtic fairy tales from the country of Mr. J. F. Campbell. Taken altogether, something like a hundred previously unpublished tales from Celtum have been rendered accessible to the world since I last wrote, a by no means insignificant outcome in three years. It is at any rate clear that the only considerable addition to our folklore knowledge in these isles must come from the Gaelic area. The time of harvest can be but short, May the workers be many, willing, and capable. Chapter 27. The Fate of the Children of Lear. Sources. Abridged from the text and translation published by the Society for the Preservation of the Irish Language in 1883. This merely follows the text and version given by Professor O'Curry in Atlantis Four. He used three Dublin manuscripts, none of them, however, of earlier date than the 18th century. Dr. Joyce gives a free paraphrase in his Old Celtic Romances. Parallels For Jealous Stepmother, see the bibliographical references in the list of incidents at the end of my paper on the science of folk tales in the Transactions of the Folklore Congress, Savace. Add Miss Rolf Cox in Folklore Journal, also the same list, Savace, Swan Maiden Transformation. In modern Irish literature, Griffin has included the tale in his Tales of the Jury Room, and Tom Moore's Song of Fenula beginning Silent O'Moyle, is founded upon it. Remarks The fate of the children of Lear is always referred to along with the story of Deirdre, compare with the Celtic fairy tales 9, and the children of Chiron as one of the three sorrowful tales of Aaron. But there is no evidence of equal antiquity to the other two stories, of which one is as old as the 11th century. From the interspersed verse, O'Curry concluded, however, that the story was at least of considerable antiquity, and the references to the unknown St. Macomog confirm his impression. The hill of the White Field is near Newton Hanton in the county of Armagh. The Lake of the Red Eye is Loch Derg in the Shannon above Killaloo. Fingula is Fair Shoulder. The tradition that swans are inviolable is still extant in Ireland. A man named Connor Griffin killed eleven swans. 
He had previously been a prosperous man, and shortly afterwards his son was drowned in the Shannon, his goods were lost, and his wife died. See The Children of Lear, Dublin. In County Mayo, it is believed that the souls of pure virgins are after death enshrined in the forms of swans. If anybody injures them, it is thought he will die within a year. See Walter's Natural History of the Birds of Ireland. Mr. Gom concludes from this that the swan was at one time a British totem. At first sight, the tale seems little more than an argument against the bill for marriage with a deceased wife's sister, but the plaintive lays of Fingula, the touching denial of the swans flying over the desolate hill and white field, give a touch of Celtic glamour to the whole story. There is probably also a deep religious significance implied in the fact that the wicked aunt stepmother's spell is broken when the transformed children of Lear come across the first Christian they meet. Mr. Nutt has kindly communicated the following remarks on this tale. The fate of the children of Lear belongs formally to the so-called mythological cycle the personages of which are the Tuatha de Danann. The Irish analysts of the 10th and 11th centuries described these as members of one of the races which possessed Ireland in pre-Christian times before the coming of the Malaysians. But even in the most strongly euhemerized accounts, the mythic nature of these beings is apparent, and most modern scholars are agreed that they are, in fact, the members of a pagan Irish pantheon. They live on to this very day in Irish folk belief as chiefs and rulers of the fairies. The manuscript evidence for some of the stories concerning the Tuatha de Danann is as old as that for the oldest heroic cycle. See the Ultonian of Concobar and Cuchulain. But the Tuatha de Danann legends have retained throughout Irish literature greater plasticity and vitality than most of the Ultonian cycle, and many stories are not older in their present state than the 14th and 15th centuries. This is probably the case with the present story. The oldest known manuscript only goes back to 1718, but this and the manuscript of 1721 used by O'Curry for this edition are certainly copied from much older manuscripts. The interesting question for storyologists is whether the themes of the story, the swan metamorphosis consequent upon the stepmother's jealousy and the protecting role assigned to the sister, are of old native or of recent imported nature. In support of the first hypothesis, it may be noted that the theme of stepmotherly jealousy was current in Ireland in the 10th century at the latest, as it is woven into the saga of the destruction of De Derga's fort. See my article Folklore 2. The final episode of the sudden ageing of the miraculously long-lived swans is also genuinely Irish, but its true significance is obscured in our story in a way that sufficiently demonstrates the late and secondary character of the text. The idea is that the dwellers in the fairy, whether fairy folk or mortals penetrating thither, enjoy perpetual life forfeited by the latter the moment they return to this earth. As children of the Tuatha de Danann, Fiungula and her brothers are deathless, and the episode as it stands in our text results from a contamination of the original form of the story in which the swan metamorphosis was annulled under certain conditions, the removal of the chains. When the original shape was resumed and the familiar story of the mortal returning from fairy after hundreds of years 
which he deems to be but a short space of time, shrinking into dust the moment he touches earth. There is a well-known continental folktale, the Seven Swans, or Ravens, of which we possess several medieval 12th to 13th century versions, all connected with the romance of the Swan Knight. Monsieur Gaston Paris has studied the whole story group, Romania, with the following results. The folktale of the Seven Swans had originally nothing to do with the saga of the Swan Knight. The connection apparent in the 12th century texts is artificial. The swans owe their shape-shifting capacity to the superhuman nature of their mother. This trait has been almost effaced even in the oldest versions. The distinguishing mark of the swans in all the versions is the possession of silver or gold chains, which are what may be called metamorphosis tokens. It follows from this that the contamination of the two story types, Seven Swans and Swan Knight, must be older than the oldest version of the first story, as these chains can only be derived from the one with which, in the Swan Knight saga, the swan draws the knight back. In Romania, Mr. Ferdinand Lott examines the question in the light of our tale. He points out that it indicates clearly the superhuman nature of the mother, and that, as the silver chains figure in the story, they cannot be due, in the continental versions, to contamination with the Swan Knight saga, as Monsieur Gaston Paris imagines. Mr. Lott evidently inclines to look upon them as talismans, the abandonment of which was the original cause of the metamorphosis, and the handling of which at the end brings about the change back to the human shape. He points out that these chains form an essential part of the gear of beings appearing in bird guise, especially if they belong to fairy, Thus, in the 10th century sickbed of Huchollen, the goddesses Fand and Lieben appear as two swans united by a golden chain. In the 8th to 9th century conception of Cuchulain, Juktira, the mother of the hero by the god Lug, appears with her companions in the guise of many-hued birds linked together by chains of silver or red gold in one version. The manuscript evidence for these tales reaches back to the early 11th century. Curiously enough, Mr. Lott has not cited the closest parallel to our tale from Old Irish literature, and one which is certainly connected with it in some measure, the fine story called The Dream of Angus. A story of this title is cited in the epic catalogue of the Book of Leinster, which dates back to the early 11th century, as one of the introductory stories to the Tain Bokulia. This assumed its present shape substantially between 650 and 750. The introductory stories had originally no connection with it, and were invented or reshaped in the 8th to 10th centuries after the Tain had taken the undisputed place as the leading Irish epic. The tale may therefore be ascribed provisionally to the 9th century, if we can only be sure that the existing version, preserved in a single manuscript of the 15th century, is a faithful copy of the original. There need be no doubt as to this. The text is due to a Christian scribe, and like nearly all portions of the mythological cycle, portrays signs of Christian influence, though not of Christian remodelling. 
Such influence is, however, far more likely to have exerted itself in the first stage of the written existence of these tales, when the memory of organised paganism was still tenacious, than later when the tales had become subject matter for the play of free poetic fancy. The story, printed and translated by Dr. E. Muller, is as follows. Angus, the chief wizard of the Tuatha de Danann, is visited in sleep by a maiden whose beauty throws him into lovesickness. The whole of Ireland is scoured to find her. The Dagda is appealed to in vain. At length, Bod, fairy king of Munster, finds her at Loch Beldrachan. This is not the only trace of the impression which the story of Bell and the dragon made upon the Irish mind. She lives there with a hundred and fifty swans. One year they are in swan shape, the next in human shape. They appear as white birds with silvery chains and golden caps around their heads. Angus changes himself into a swan to be with her, and it is recorded of the music that they made that people fell asleep for three days and three nights. The soporific power of music is that which is chiefly commended in old Irish literature. I think it is obvious that the writer of our story was familiar with this and other legends in which swan maids encircled with gold and silver chains appear, and that we may fairly draw the following conclusions from the preceding facts. There existed an Irish folk tale of a king with two wives, one a water or sea fairy whose children derive from her the capacity of shape-shifting dependent upon certain talismans. Jealousy impels the human wife to tamper with these talismans, and the children are condemned to remain in their animal form. This folk-tale was, probably at some time in the 14th or 15th century, arbitrarily fitted into the cadre of the Tuatha de Danann cycle, and entirely refashioned in the spirit of pious edification by a man who was in his way a great and admirable artist. The origin and nature of the story, all the elements of which are genuinely national, assured for it wide and lasting popularity. The evolution of the Irish folktale is in no way dependent upon that of the continental folk-tale of the Seven Swans. But it is possible that the Celtic presentiment of the chain-girdled swans may have influenced it as well as the Swan Knight romance. Chapter 28. Jack the Cunning Thief Sources. Kennedy. Stories of Ireland. Campbell. West Highland Tales. The Shifty Lad, Desant, Popular Tales from the Norse, Master Thief. Kohler has a number of variants in his notes on Campbell, Orient und Occident, Band 2. Mr. Clouston has a monograph on the subject in his Popular Tales. A separate treatise on the subject has been given by S. Prato, 1882, La Legenda de Ramsonite. Both these writers connect the modern folk tales with Herodotus's story of King Ramsonites. Mr. Knowles, in his folk tales of Kashmir, has a number of adventures of Sharif the Thief. The story of Master Thief has been heard among the tramps in London workhouses. See Mayhew, London Labour and London Poor. Remarks Thievery is universally human, and at first sight it might seem that there was no connection between these various versions of the master thief. But the identity of the tricks by which the popular hero thief gains his ends renders it impossible that they should have been independently invented wherever they are found. Chapter 29. Powell, Prince of Dyfed. Source. Lady Guest's Mabinogion, with the names slightly anglicised and omitting the opening incident. 
Parallels. For the incident of tearing off the hands, compare Moraha, the enchanted hill and maiden occur at the beginning of Churiskul Moor in Scottish Celtic Review and are fully commented upon by Mr. Nutt. Chapter 30. Paddy O'Kelly and the Weasel. Sources. Hide beside the fire. Pages 73 to 91. Parallels. On green hills as the homes of the fairies. See note on Child Roland, English Fairy Tales, page 241. The transformation of witches into hares is a frequent motif in folklore. Chapter 31. The Black Horse. Sources. From J. F. Campbell's manuscript collection, now deposited at the Advocates Library in Edinburgh. Manuscript 53, Volume 11. Collected in Gaelic, February 14, 1862, by Hector MacLean, from Roderick MacNeil in the island of Mengle. MacNeil learnt the story about 1840 from a Barra man. I have omitted one visit of the Black Horse to Greece, but otherwise left the tale untouched. Mr. Nutt gave a short abstract of the story in his report on the Campbell manuscripts in Folklore. Parallels Campbell gives the following parallels in his notes on the tale, which I quote verbatim. On the throwing into the well, he remarks, So this incident of Lady Audley's secret was in the mind of a Barra peasant about 1840. Part of a modern novel may be as old as Aryan mythology, which was one point to be proved. Note, the incident of throwing into the well almost invariably forms a part of the tales of the white cat type. With regard to the black horse, Campbell notes that a Gaelic riddle makes a black horse identical with the west wind and adds, it is for consideration whether this horse throws a light on the sacred wheel in Indian sculptures. It is to be noted that a black horse is the sacrificial colour. The cup is a well-known myth about winning a fairy cup, which pervades Scandinavian England in many forms. A silver ring, two quaint serpents' heads pointing opposite ways, is a common Scandinavian wedding ring. Many were to be got in Barra and elsewhere in 1869, sold by emigrants bound for America. Those who can account for myths must settle the geography of the snow mountain. Avalanches and glaciers are in Iceland, in the Caucasus, and in Central Asia. There are none within sight of Mengle. Hindu cosmogony, which makes the world consist of seven rings, separated by seas and by a wall of mountains, may account for this in some sort. On the spikes driven into the horse, Campbell compares the Norse story of Dapplegrim and the horse sacrifice of the Mahabharata. On the building of the magic castle, Campbell remarks, Twashtree was the carpenter of the Vedic gods. Can this be his work? On the horse's head being struck off, Campbell comments, this was the last act in the Aryan's horse's sacrifice and the first step in the horse apotheosis. Remarks Campbell has the following note at the end of the tale, from which it would seem that in 1870 at least he was very nearly being an India maniac. So ends this horse riding story. Taking it as it is, with the test of language added, nothing short of an Asian origin will account for it. A Gaelic riddle makes a black horse mean the invisible wind, and a theorist might suppose this horse to be the air personified. As Greece is mentioned, he might be Pegasus, who had to do with wells, but he had wings, and he was white, and there is nothing in classical fable like this Atlantic myth. The enchanted horse 
of Arabian Nights was a flying machine, and his adventures are quite different. This is not the horse of Chaucer's squire's tale. He is more like Hiramfaxi, the horse of the Edda, who drew the car of Knot in heaven and was ridden round the earth in twelve hours, followed by the Dagra and his glittering horse Skinfaxi. The black horse who always arrives at sunrise is like the horse of night, but there is no equivalent story in the Edda. Dapplegrim in Norse tales is clad in a spiked bull's hide and is mixed up with a blazing tar barrel, but his adventures won't fit and he was grey. The story is but an imperfect skeleton. The cup was to give strength. He had to open seven gates after he got the cup, but it does nothing. The hood is to hide with. He went in and out of the palace unseen after he had got the hood, but it plays no part. The light shoes were the shoes of swiftness, of course, but they never showed their paces. Balder's horse was led to the funeral pile with all his gear, and Odin laid the gold ring Dofnir on the pile. Such rites might account for the ring in the blazing lake. Hermothers ride northwards and downwards to the abode of hell to seek Balder, his leap over the grate, and his return with the ring, Edda 23, might account for one adventure. The many-coloured horses of the sun in the Indian mythology and solar myths may account for all these horses astronomically or meteorologically. The old Aryan Ashwa Medha, or sacrifice of a black horse, and the twelve adventures of Aruna, as told in the Mahabharata, are something like this story in some general vague way. But the simplest explanation of this Mengle myth fished out of the Atlantic is to admit that the black horse and all this mythical breed came west with men who rode from the land where horses were tamed, which is unknown. Chapter 32 The Vision of Macanlini Source kindly condensed by Mr. Alfred Nutt from Professor Mayer's edition of The Vision, published in book form in 1892. This contains two versions, a longer one from a 14th-century manuscript, Laher Breck, or Speckled Book, and a shorter one from a 16th-century manuscript in the Library of Trinity College, Dublin. A translation of the former version was given by the late W. M. Hennessy in Fraser's Magazine, September 1873. Professor Walner, who contributed to Professor Mayer's edition an introduction dealing with the story from the standpoint of comparative literature, considers that the latter version reproduces the original common source more nearly. Parallels at first sight, the vision seems to picture the land of cocaine, on which see Pochel, das Merchenbaum Schlaraffenland, Halle, 1878. But as Professor Walner remarks, the Irish form is much more simple and primitive, and represents rather an agricultural conception of a past aria etas. The conception of enormous appetite being due to the presence of a voracious animal or demon within the body is widespread among the folk. Professor Walner gives numerous parallels. The common expression to wolf one's food is said to be derived from this conception. On the personification of disease, see Taylor, Primitive Culture. I can myself remember a tale somewhat similar to The Vision, which I heard from my nurse in Australia, I fancy as a warning against gluttony. She told me of a man who, in swallowing large pieces of food, had swallowed a little hairy monster which grew and grew and grew, and caused the man to be eating all day to satisfy his visitors. 
He was cured by being made to fast, and then a bowl of brandy was brought in front of his mouth, into which the hairy thing, attracted by the fumes, jumped and was drowned. Remarks We have here an interesting example of the personification of disease in the form of a demon, of which some examples occur in the Gospels. The rollicking Rabelaisian tone in which the story is told prevents us, however, from attributing any serious belief in the conception by the Irish monk, the author of the tale, who was parodying, according to Professor Walner, the visions of the saints. Still, he would be scarcely likely to use the conception, even for purposes of parody, unless it were current among the folk, and it occurs among them even at the present day. See Hyde Beside the Fire, page 183. Chapter 33. Dream of Owen O'Mulready. Sources kindly translated by Mr. Leyland L. Duncan from Gaelic Journal, volume 4, page 57. Parallels, Croker's Daniel O'Rourke, may be compared in part. Remarks At first sight, a mere drawl, the story has its roots in the most primitive philosophy. Owen's problem is to get in the land of dreams. Now dreamland, so all our students of mythology are agreed, is the source and origin of our belief in souls and spirits. Owen's problem, therefore, resolves itself into this. Where was he to go in order to come into closest contact with the world of spirits? Mark what he does. He clears the hearth and has his bed made in it. Now it is around the hearth that the fullest associations with the spirit life are clustered. The late Monsieur Fustel de Coulanges, in his Cité Antique, traces back most of the Greek and Roman religions and a large number of their institutions to the worship of the ancestors localized in the heart. The late Professor Hearn extended his line of research to the whole of the Aryans in his Aryan household. It will thus be seen from the course of reasoning that Owen was acting on the most approved primitive principles in adopting this curious method of obtaining dreams. The story is not known elsewhere than in Ireland, and we are therefore at liberty to apply the method of survivals to this case. Chapter 34. Moraha. Sources. The second story in Mr. W. Larminy's West Irish Folk Tales, pages 10 to 30. The framework was collected from Mr. P. McGrail of Ackle Island, County Mayo. The story itself was from Terence Davis of Rendile, County Galway. There is evidently confusion in the introductory portion between Niall's mother and wife. Parallels Campbell's number one has a very close parallel to the opening. Mr. Larminy refers to a similar tale collected by Kennedy. Another version from Westminster has been recently published in the Gaelic Journal. The evasion of the promise to give up the sword at the end seems a favourite incident in Ackle folk tales. It occurs in two others of Mr. Larminy's stories. On the framework, see note on Conal Yellow Claw, Celtic Folk Tales 5. I have there suggested that the plan comes from the East, ultimately from Buddha. Chapter 35. The Story of the MacAndrew Family Sources Supplied by Mrs. Gale, now in the United States, from the recitation of her mother, who left Ireland over fifty years ago. Parallels. Noodle tales like this are found everywhere in Europe and have been discussed by Mr. Clouston in a special monograph in the Book of Noodles, 1889. The cell at the end is similar to that in The Wise Men of Gotham. Kennedy, Farside Stories of Ireland, 
gives a similar set of adventures. Page 119. Remarks. Mrs. Gale remarks that it was a common superstition in Ireland that if a raven hovered over the head of cattle, a withering blight had been set upon the animals. As birds of carrion, they were supposed to be waiting for the carcasses. Chapter 36. The Farmer of Lidsdale. Sources. MacDowell. Waifs and Strays. 3. Parallels. Campbell, West Highland Tales, The Master and the Man. Remarks. I need scarcely suggest the identification of the ploughman with the... There is a word missing from the text. As usual, in folk tales, that personage does not get the best of the bargain. The rustic Faust evades his contract by a direct appeal to the higher powers... This is probably characteristic of a Scotch piety. Chapter 37. The Greek Princess and the Young Gardener. Sources. Kennedy. Farside Stories. Pages 47 to 56. Parallels. Campbell. West Highland Tales. Mac Ian Dearlock. He gives other variants at the end. The story is clearly that of the Grimm's Golden Bird, number 57. They give various parallels in their notes. Mrs. Hunt refers to an Eskimo version in Ray's White Sea Peninsula, called Kuoba and the Giant and the Devil. But the most curious and instructive parallel is that afforded by the Arthurian romance of Whaleween, that is, Gawain, now only extant in Dutch, which, as Professor W. P. Kerr has pointed out in Folklore, exactly corresponds to the popular tale, and thus carries it back in Celtum to the early 12th century at the latest. Chapter 38. The Russet Dog Source. I have made up this Celtic Reynard out of several fables given by Campbell, West Highland Tales, under the title Fables, and The Keg of Butter, and The Fox and the Little Bonnock, Volume 3. Parallels. The Fox's Ruse About a Truce Among the Animals is a well-known Aesop's fable. See my edition of Caxton's Aesop, Volume 2, page 307, and Parallels. Volume 1, page 267. The trick by which the cock gets out of the fox's mouth is a part of the Reynard cycle and is given by Chaucer as his non-prestes tale. How the wolf lost his tail is also part of the same cycle, the parallels of which are given by K. Crone, Bar, Wolf und Fuchs, Helsingfors, 1889, pages 26 to 28. The same writer has studied the geographical distribution of the story in Finland, accompanied by a map in Fenia 4, number 4. I have given a medieval Hebrew version in my Jews of Angevin, England, pages 170 to 172. See also Gerber, Great Russian Animal Tales, pages 48 to 50. The wolf was originally the bear, as we can see from the conclusion of the incident, which professes to explain why the wolf is stumpy-tailed. The keg of butter combines two of the grim stories, 2 and 189. The little bonnock occurs also in English and has been given in two variants in English fairy tales, number 28, and more English fairy tales, number 57. Remarks. It would lead me too far afield to discuss here the sources of Reynard the Fox, with which I hope shortly to deal at great length elsewhere. But I would remark that in this case, as in several others, we have observed the stories, which are certainly reproductions, have received the characteristic Celtic dress. 
It follows that we cannot conclude anything as to the origin of a tale from the fact that it is told idiomatically. On the other hand, the stories of the fox and the wrens, and the fox and the Todd hunter, and how the fox gets rid of his, his fleas, have no parallels elsewhere, and show the possibility of a native beast tale or cycle of tales. Chapter 39. Smallhead and the King's Son. Source, Mr. Curtin's Hero Tales of Ireland, contributed to the New York Sun. Parallels. Campbell's number 17, Maulacrivon, is the same story, which is also found among the Lowlanders, and is given in my English Fairy Tales number 22, Molly Whoopi, where see notes for other parallels of the hop-o'-my-thumb type of story. King Under the Waves occurs in Campbell's number 86. Chapter 40. The Legend of Knockgrafton. Source, Croker, Fairy Legends of South of Ireland. Parallels, Parnell's poem Edwin and Sir Topaz contains the same story. As he was born in Dublin, 1679, this traces the tale back at least 200 years in Ireland. Practically the same story, however, has been found in Japan and translated into English under the title Kobatori, or The Old Man and the Devils. In the story published by Kobansha, Tokyo, the old man has a lump on the side of his face, he sees the demons dancing and, getting exhilarated, joins in. Thereupon the devils are so delighted that they wish to see him again and, as a pledge of his return, take away from him his lump. Another old man, who has a similar lump on the other side of his face, hearing of this, tries the same plan, but dances so badly that the devils, not wishing to see him again, and mistaking him for the other old man, give him back the lump, so that he has one on each side of his face. I may add here that Mr. York Powell informs me that number 17 of the same series, entitled Shippy Taro, contains a parallel to the hobbyas of more English tales. Remarks. Here we have a problem of diffusion presented in its widest form. There can be little doubt that the legend of Knockgrafton and Cobatory, one collected in Ireland and to be traced there for the last 200 years, and the other collected at the present day in Japan, are one and the same story, and it is impossible to imagine they were independently produced. Considering that Parnell could not have come across the Japanese version, we must conclude that Kobatori is a recent importation into Japan. On the other hand, as the Hobias cannot be traced in England and was collected from a Scottish family settled in the United States, where Japanese influence has been considerable, it is possible that this tale was derived from Japan within the memory of men still living. It would be highly desirable to test these two cases, in which we seem to be able to observe the process of the diffusion of folk tales going on before our eyes. Chapter 41. Elidor. Source, Geraldus Camprensis, Itinerarium Cambriae. I have followed the Latin text tolerably closely. Parallels. Mr. Hartland has a paper on robberies in fairyland. Davies, Mythology of the British Druids, page 155, tells a story of a door in a rock near a cave in the mountains of Brecknock, which was left open for May Day, and men used to enter and so reach that fairy island in the middle of the lake. The visitors were treated very hospitably by their fairy hosts, but on the condition that they might eat all but pocket none. For once a visitor took away with him a fairy flower, and as soon as he got outside the door, 
the flower vanished and the door was never more opened. The luck of Eden Hall, still in existence, is supposed to be a trophy brought back from a similar visit. Remarks Mr. Hartland suggests that these legends and the relics connected with them are in some way connected with the heathen rites prevalent in these islands before the introduction of Christianity, which may have lingered on into historic times. The absence of sunlight in this account of the House of the Fairies, as in Child Roland, on which see note in English fairy tales, may be regarded as a point in favour of Mr. MacRitchie's theories as to the identification of the fairies with the mound dwellers. The object of the expectoration was to prevent Elidor's seeing his way back. Thus the fairies prevent the indiscretions of the human midwives they employ. Chapter 42 The Leeching of Cain's Leg Source, MacHines, Folk Tales from Argyleshire, 7, combined with Campbell of Tyree's version. Parallels. The earliest version from an Egerton manuscript of the 15th century has been printed by Mr. S. H. O'Grady in his Silva Gadelica, number 20, with an English version on pages 332 to 342. Mr. Campbell of Tyree has given a short Gaelic version in the Transactions of the Gaelic Society of Inverness, pages 78 to 100. Campbell of Islay collected the fullest version of this celebrated story, which is to be found among his manuscript remains now in Edinburgh. Mr. Nutt has given his English abstract in Folklore, in its original form. The story must have contained 24 tales or episodes of stories, 19 of which are preserved in J.F. Campbell's version. For parallels to the various incidents, see Mr. Nutt's Notes on Mackines, pages 470 to 473. The tale is referred to in MacNichol Remarks on Dr. Johnson's Journey to the Hebrides, 1779. Remarks Nothing could give a more vivid idea of what might be called the organisation of the art of storytelling among the Celts than this elaborate tale. Mr. Nutt is inclined to trace it, even in its present form, back to the 12th or 13th century. It occurs in a manuscript of the 15th century in an obviously unoriginal form which shows that the storyteller did not appreciate the significance of many features in the folk tale he was retelling, and yet it was orally collected by the great Campbell in 1871 in a version which runs to 142 folio pages. Formerly, its interest consists in large measure in the curious framework in which the subsidiary stories are embedded. This is not of the elaborate kind introduced into Europe from the East by the Crusades, but more naive, resembling rather, as Mr. Nutt points out to me, the loosely knit narratives of Charles Lever in his earliest manner. Chapter 43 how Finn went to the kingdom of the big men. Source, J.G. Campbell, The Fiends, Waifs and Strays, number 4, pages 175 to 192. Parallels. The voyage to Brobdingnag will occur to many readers, and it is by no means impossible that, as Swift was once an Irish lad, the voyage may have been suggested by some such tale told him in his infancy. It is not, however, a part of the earlier recorded Ossianic cycle. Though oversea giants occur as opponents of the heroes in that as well as in the earlier Ultonian cycle. Chapter 44 How Cormac MacArt Went to Fairy Source 
kindly condensed by Mr. Alfred Nutt from an English version by Mr. S. H. O'Grady in Oceanic Society's Publications, Volume 3. The oldest known version has been printed from 14th century manuscripts by Mr. Whitley Stokes, Irisha Texta, 3. The story existed in some form in the early 11th century as it is cited in the epic catalogue contained in the Book of Leinster. Parallels Mr. Nutt, in his studies on the legend of the Holy Grail, page 193, connects this visit of Cormac to the other world with the bespelled castle incident in the Grail legend and gives other instances of visits to the Brug of Mananan. Mananan MacLear is the Celtic sea god. Chapter 45 Riddier of Riddles Source Campbell, West Highland Tales, number 22, volume 2, page 36. I have modified the end which has a polygamous complexion. Parallels Campbell points out that the story is in the main identical with the Grimm's Creatzel, number 22. There the riddle is, one slew none and yet slew twelve. MacDowell has the same story in Waifs and Strays, 3, pages 76 onwards. Remarks. There can be no doubt that the Celtic and German riddle stories are related genealogically. Which is of the earlier generation is, however, more difficult to determine. In favour of the Celtic is the polygamous framework, while on the other hand it is difficult to guess how the story could have got from the highlands to Germany. The simpler form of the riddle in the German version might seem to argue greater antiquity. Chapter 46. The Tale Source Campbell, number 57. Parallels. Most storytellers have some formula of this kind to conclude their narrations. Professor Crane gives some examples in his Italian Popular Tales, pages 155 to 157. The English have, I'll tell you a story of Jack and Ori, and The Three Wise Men of Gotham, who went to sea in a bowl. If the bowl had been stronger, my song would have been longer. End of Notes and References Recorded by Nolo Kelly in Dublin End of More Celtic Fairy Tales by Joseph Jacobs